Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Okay, so hello. My name's Jason, and uh, this is Against the Stream. This is the Monday night class. I'm teaching for Noah Levine, who is on retreat. His retreat started yesterday, last night, and um, he'll be gone for a week. He'll be back. I think he's back next month, next Monday, so. And so anyone new, anyone new to the center uh, that would like to introduce themselves, either on the Zoom or in the room, just like say your name. Or Josh, I've been coming for a week. Great. Yeah. All right. What's your name again? Clay. Clay. Okay. And then I heard someone on the... Justin. Justin, where are you at? Boston. Boston. All right. Thanks for staying up late. Thank you. Maybe it's not that late. I don't know. (laughs) For you. Anyway, welcome. Great. So, yeah, you know, last week I started a bit of a theme and I'm going to... I'm going to kind of come go back to that theme, and it was working off of uh, a theme that Noah had talked about, uh, the what's called the Buddhist temperaments or the Buddhist personality types. So we'll get a little bit more into that, and I'll do a bit of an overview. The um, the title of the talk uh, I call it "Meditate and Destroy," and um, it's you know it's our one of our kind of um, battle cries around here and uh so we'll get back to that but first let's let's settle in let's let's meditate we're going to meditate for about 30 minutes and then um we'll have some discussion so finding a posture that's workable that's sustainable where you can um both um be relaxed and alert Just kind of settle in. Taking a few deeper breaths. I like to take like a four count inhale and a six count exhale, really just feeling the lungs expand on the inhale, and then trying to soften the belly on the exhale. But in some way, arriving here.
opening to the different sounds coming and going sounds outside the room sounds inside the room And then in some way allowing the, just the different sounds to be in the background of our attention. And allowing the focus or the attention to rest within the body. Some particular emphasis on the experience of breathing. Where can you notice the contact of the breath in the body? in some way, just try to maintain that connection to this experience of breathing in the body. Tip of the nose, rise and fall of the belly, wherever you can most easily make contact. And then just try to sustain that contact. Of course, the mind may be more active, and that's okay. Accepting the mind just as it is, busy or sleepy or agitated, peaceful, calm, just as it is. Sometimes it's helpful to give the mind a job 
So attaching a, a phrase or two or a word or two to the, the breath can be useful. Something like breathing in, calming the mind. Breathing out, relaxing the body. Breathing in, calm. Breathing out, relax. Of course, the attention may wander off. It's not a problem. It's just what minds do. Think, 
plan, remember. Whenever we recognize that the attention has wandered off with a sense of friendliness or kindness with the mind, we aim the attention back. Breathing in, calm. Breathing out, relax. Relaxing into each new breath. Observing what arises through all the sense doors, smells and ears, hearing, perhaps taste and touch, even the eyes with the eyes closed. thoughts, observing without getting lost or carried away. And allowing all these different experiences to just arise and pass away as all things do.
allow. Breathing in, know that you're breathing in. Breathing out, know that you're breathing out. Relaxed, alert.
again and again. Recognizing when the attention wanders off. And with that sense of friendliness or kindness with the mind, aiming the attention back to this sitting, breathing body, present time experience here, now. Breathing in, calm, breathing out, relax.
some point, once the mind has perhaps calmed a bit, settled, like a pond that the sediment has been, you know, disturbed in some way. Takes a little time to settle and become clear. We can begin to aim the reflective mind toward thoughts, feelings, themselves. Asking some kind of simple question, what's it like here? What's happening in this mind? Is there some agitation? Is there some story that we can't let go of? Some emotion that keeps asking for attention. Just observing what's happening here. Acknowledging what's present without getting carried away by the story or the mental fabrication the emotion itself. Relaxing into each new breath. Observing what arises in the heart, in the mind. And allowing whatever arises to stay for a time and pass away, as all things do.
Oh, the mind. So I guess what I'd like to do is open up for just maybe a couple questions before I get into the topic, um, just to see questions specifically about maybe the instructions. No. Any questions? Yeah. Um, this is a question about the meditation thing. Yeah. Um, so sometimes when I meditate, like I'll uh, I'll get carried away on a thought, and then like another thought, and then like another thought, and then keep going, and I sort of like black out at some point, and like I'm not really asleep, but I'm not really awake, and then like I don't know, it's it feels like relief, like it feels so good, and like, Sometimes it happens for just like a moment, other times it'll be like a few moments maybe, and then sometimes it lasts for like 10 minutes probably. Which part? The the kind of thought upon thought or no, the... It just sort of blacking out and uh -huh. not even realizing that I exist for a minute. You know? Uh-huh, um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but like, sometimes when I do it, that doesn't happen at all. It feels like my mind is so active, like, that I can't. I, I don't know. I'm like, is it good if that happens? Is it bad if that happens? What is it? Like, if I'm, if it doesn't happen and I'm just present the whole time meditating, is that a good thing and is that a bad thing? Yeah, I mean, I I try to not look at it as good and bad. Um, great. Thanks for asking that question, though. Very pertinent. Uh, you know, there's different states of mind. We have different states of mind all throughout the day. We have like 70,000 thoughts, thoughts a day, you know? So pretty busy up there most of the time. And the fact that you can like notice, oh, I'm in this, in what the Buddha called papancha, which is like this rumination, right? Thought after thought after thought, maybe they're linked, maybe they're not, maybe they're just like random, you know? But most often they're linked. One thought leads to another thought, leads to another thought, leads to another thought. So there's a, a, like a thought chain, right? Um, sometimes they call them thought trains, like you get on the train of thought and then you're, you're off and running. And then at some point, it sounds like what happens for you is that just you're, you get kind of bored of it at some point. And probably because you're practicing, you're doing this practice, and then it fades away. Um, and that, that can be useful. Sure. It also could also, it depends on the amount, length of time that you meditate. Sometimes uh, it takes, you know, 20 minutes or so. So we meditate for about 30 minutes, takes about 20 minutes or so for the literally the brain to begin to shift from the kind of uh, alpha waves, which are the kind of busyness of the mind, which we're usually utilizing most of the day, to more of a theta, which is a kind of a more relaxed state, well, actually alpha, beta, theta. And so the beta is a little bit sleepy, zoned out. And then below that is more, uh, more of a theta, which is relaxed but alert. And then there's um, delta, which is like the insight that can really come from sustained practice. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't overthink it. Yeah, just notice that it's happening. Recognize, oh, yeah, now that it's not as busy as it was before. So yeah, so not, 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 not good. It sounds like you're doing just fine. And sometimes it's disturbing and sometimes it's, you know, easy and.
Sometimes it's hard. And every day it's different. Go ahead. Um, is it productive or um, to kind of try to figure out what that thought train means, like with the connected thoughts? Is there something like, should we be trying to dive into that? Or is mm -hmm. that just the monkey mind? That I mean, there's two ways so that, and I pointed a little bit towards it, towards the end of the meditation. There's two ways to kind of look at it. In the beginning, it's probably pretty useful to just follow the instructions, ignore the mind. It's way fucking busy. There's too much going on. Um, it's not disciplined at all. You know, it's just like a monkey, right? I want this. I want that. I'm going to jump here and jump there and grab this and grab that. Yeah. <clears throat> and there's instability. Once some stability happens, in other words, been doing the practice for a while, you start to feel that kind of calm state. And then, because papancha is actually a part of the, a it's just a distractive state, right? It's just distraction. And we're, and we're doing that all day long. I've got to figure this out. I've got to figure this out. I want to figure that out. And it's usually a way of avoiding what's actually going on. So the idea is to just kind of ignore it for a while. And then once... We start to experience some some calmer states, like literally, like kind of sh like shifting to theta. And I'm not saying like in one session. I'm saying maybe over six months, right? Then what what you might find is there's recurring themes that come up, and so themes are more important than random related thoughts. The brain just does that; it makes associations. That's its job, actually. It sees something and makes an association. And then, then we have another association based on that association. That's just what the brain does. It's really fucking good at that most of the time. Um, so anyway, so that's kind of, and after some time settling the mind, uh, working with quieting the hindrances, and there might be some themes that come up. Now, I'm a huge fan of like, after a meditation, having a journal right next to you and kind of jotting some things down. Oh, there's these recurring thoughts. Maybe talk to your therapist about that or, you know, uh, maybe do some other writing about it or some reading around it, you know, uh, engaging with it that way. But in meditation, it's, it's just a monkey screaming for something shiny. Yeah, that's all. Thank you for that. All right, I'm going to... Let me see. Let me see what there's. Okay, good. There's no hands here. So I'm going to come back to open up for some questions later. But I want to, I want to cover because I felt like I, we focused on one aspect last week of the greed, hatred, and delusion. Um, so greed, hatred, and delusion are known as the kalesas. They're uh, known as, which are the torments of mind. Uh, as taught by the Buddha. And, you know, there, there can be some ways in which we look at th that we all have a tendency, either we're more of a greed type or more of a kind of a, a attachment style um, type or more of an aversive type or more of a maybe deluded or um, sometimes it's kind of thought of as ignorance or confused type. And so, with everyone that we, you know, we did a little um, visualization last week, but whatever one, I'm just going to kind of work through a few antidotes this week. Uh, but it's important, I think, to remember that, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion is the kind of overall 
like umbrella of what's called the kalesas or the torments of mind, really the reasons that we suffer, so to speak, right? Um, and that we can ultimately see greed, hatred, and delusion as like unskillful qualities that don't lead to happiness, because that's really what the Buddha is pointing to. Oh, we're feeding greed, pleasurable, wanting, craving, but is it ultimately leading to happiness or contentment? Usually not. No, usually not. At some point, it, it, whatever it is fades. The newness of it fades. The excitement of it fades. The uh, quality of it fades. And then we're just wanting more, right? Cra craving is interesting because all that craving really does is take away the craving. It doesn't actually take away the desire. It just takes away the craving temporarily, and then the craving comes back, whatever it is. Have you noticed that? You know, it just makes it go away temporarily and actually just builds more and more on craving. So anyway, just to kind of simply say that, you know, I see greed. Well, so I'm going to go with greed and, uh, and talk about the antidote to the greed, the greed type. Um, and uh, I'll see if I can get through all of it. I'm not sure if I'll get through all of it today. So we, we'll, we'll, we'll see what we can do. But one of the ways to really work with greed in the mind or lust in the mind, and actually let me just run through what's called the, uh, the hindrances, okay? So th these are the greed, hatred, and delusion break down to what are called the five hindrances. The five hindrances basically look like sensual desire, fantasy, craving, wanting, lust. That's all under one heading. And then aversion, dislike, pushing away, avoidance, anger, ill will, resentment. And then sloth and torpor being sleepiness, laziness, sluggishness of mind. So that's a little bit, that can be that kind of when you have a, what I call sinking mind. That's a little bit what kind of maybe sometimes zoning out in meditation. It seems pleasurable and being sleepy can be pleasurable. But it's not necessarily helping us gain insight, right? Uh, restlessness, agitation, distraction. And then doubt, right? questioning or lacking in the beliefs of uh, meditation. So these are known as the five hindrances. So I guess just to simply, you know, kind of talk about the way that the Buddha described that one of the antidotes to the greed type um, would be generosity. And he started with generosity. He would say, even if you can't meditate, even if you don't um, like want to live skillfully uh, in a non-harming way, be generous. Learn to be generous. Uh, give dana. Be generous to uh, as many people as possible. And that also includes generosity towards yourself. So there's kind of three aspects to generosity or to giving from the Buddhist perspective. Um, so they're called beggarly giving, friendly giving, and kingly giving. So beggarly giving, which means, you know, giving, uh, they say giving with only one hand, right? Still holding uh, like the best or hold on to what you give in, uh, in this way. You know, it's like giving um, and then afterwards wondering if you should have even given at all, you know, or um, if you gave too much, you know. 
it's it's an interesting thing to do like with the bowl with the basket right or with like giving in a generous in a generous way like to think to yourself okay like you know if like uh it, was it you know 15 dollars was that did that feel good to give did it feel like or did you did you did your mind immediately go oh that's too much like i shouldn't give that much or oh my gosh i you know I, sh I should maybe have given them more or something like that just to kind of watch that tendency of the mind to evaluate um sometimes uh beggarly giving is also called miserly giving it's like giving with the expectation of getting in return too that's another aspect of it so then there's friendly giving and these are these are ways that the buddha actually broke down the benefits of generosity, friendly giving. And this is, you know, giving what's it's called giving with an open hand, right? We take what we have and we share it because it seems appropriate, because it's a clear giving. The emphasis of friendly giving isn't on how much, uh, but on the intention behind it. So this is like a real kind of open-hearted or friendly giving um, where you're not evaluating, was it too much? Was it not enough? Like, you know, should I take some back? I hope I get something in return, right? That's the, that's this kind of more miserly giving or, or, or a beggarly giving as, as it was described. Friendly giving, it just, it feels clean. And it takes some practice, I think, to feel that way. Um, generosity is not something that comes natural to me. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, maybe it's because of my upbringing, uh, you know, I was, was always raised in, with this kind of scarcity mentality of not having enough, not enough, um, it's never going to be enough, Didn't, am I going to have enough food, am I going to have, an, you know, it was really like, there was some time in my life where that was a reality, you know, and so I had a, uh, a kind of what's mine is mine, you know, and, um, and it really was a practice to be generous with my time and be generous with my, um, you know, my possessions, be generous. And, it, and it's taken, you know, years and decades to feel, uh, you know, more into that friendly giving. I was a little bit in the, the, what I would consider the, what's called the beggarly giving or the miserly giving, uh, giving with one hand, you know, giving with some, um, me and my sister used to do this thing where uh, we would only, we would want to always get each other, the equal in value gifts at holiday, at Christmas, you know, holidays and stuff. And so we would like, it was like this, always this game, this negotiation. And then at, at some point I just like, in the, and it was, the, I, I'm not sure how this has landed, but I just kind of stopped wanting gifts. Like I was like, I don't really need gifts, you know? And I real, and I, but I would still, you know, buy gifts for my family, but, um, but I didn't really want gifts because I didn't want to have that evaluation thing happen anymore. It was just like, I just want to, if I'm going to give a gift, I'm going to give a gift. And then I realized that um, with some help, the help of a teacher, actually, that I was actually depriving my sister of the opportunity uh, to be generous and that that was greedy. And I was like, damn, like, <laughs> damn if I do, damn if I don't, you know? So this, um, Friendly giving, right? So then there's a way of, it's the, 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 it's called kingly giving. And this is when we give the best or most of what we have, um, even if none remains for ourselves. We give the best of what we have uh, instinctively with graciousness. We've, we've all probably experienced these different types of generosity, either towards ourselves or towards others, you know. 
but it's just uh, you know one of the ways of of up uprooting uh, greed the greedy types and the the tendency to kind of uh, constantly be seeking some kind of pleasurable experience now the uh, or, or to be you know miserly or want to hold to oneself like this is mine like like i was describing kind of growing up um so the other antidote to generosity i mean to greed is to also recognize when we're constantly in a cycle of addiction and we're just you know mental obsession physical compulsion you know, need for a substance or behavior that's going to make us or a thing that's going to make us feel better or have a pleasurable experience. And then that cycle just repeats, right? That's a lot of what papancha is too. this, this kind of uh, uh, repetitive cycle, uh, rumination in our minds attached to craving. So the, the Buddha would say, you know, explore renunciation, you know, so, and whatever it is, and what is renunciate? To renounce something means to really kind of let go of the power of it, the power that it has over you. Um, so it could be sugar, or it could be sex, or it could be, you know, uh, working, uh, you know, 80 hours a week, or, you know, whatever it is that um, feels like you have an unhealthy relationship to it, to then begin uh, to examine that and then, look at stepping away for a time. Um, when I was in teacher training, uh, it was apparent that um, lust uh, and sex and dating and all that kind of, you know, had become a uh, replacement for um, drugs and alcohol for a period of time after I stopped using and drinking. And then uh, it was suggested um, to examine my relationship and so to take a year of celibacy it wasn't my first time being celibate um, but i did that and it was really helpful for me to begin to then see what happens if i actually let go of lust and desire in that way uh, and then see what what else arises you know um and i've done some different things with that you know given up different things at different times for me also drugs and alcohol of course now it's different for different people and, and we have to find what's true for us, you know, when, in this idea. But the Buddhist perspective is to, to look at renunciation. What, what do you have an unhealthy or an entangled relationship with that's causing you suffering that you crave? And then see what, what would happen if you let go or release the the substance, behavior, you know, and um, that plays out in a lot of different ways. But, uh, oh, the roots of suffering, you know, can be broken down in Buddhism to mean Kalesa, I talked about that, but greed, hatred, and aversion can be broken down in other various ways. So I want to kind of go over that. Um, Greed, anger, arrogance, envy, miserliness, dishonesty, violence, pride, conceit, confusion. These are some of the other ways that we can look at, oh, okay, like what's my relationship to pride? What's my relationship to, um, 
aversion or violence or dishonesty, arrogance or enviness. You know, all of these things are considered uh, entangling, causing suffering when we get attached or craving, you know, when we, when we crave to have these things um, more and more because they feel good or because they make us happy or whatever. It's a delusion of happiness, of course. So, uh, you know, the Buddha instructed householders that it's fine to, you know, work. It's not like, you know, renounce all, like, just go, everyone needs to become a monk, you know, like, but to be skillful about how are we using self-care? How are we using um, the teachings as a way that to uh, loosen our grip, right, on all those things I was just mentioning, arrogance and envy and miserliness and greed and you know so that's another kind of way to look at it right? any thoughts or questions before i move on from from you know talking about generosity yeah um bringing up the um, idea of giving up the pleasure of receiving a gift because there's something else that's tied into that which is just family to negotiation goes along with that. Mm. I wonder if you could speak more to the idea of I suppose having an unhealthy relationship to giving things up. Huh. Um, because there's there's something that comes to mind in this idea of having sort of different different levels of generosity and different sort of categories where there's, there's almost like a different value ascribed to those. Mm. And uh, I think something that really resonates to me with this idea of growing up in an environment where scarcity mentality is thrust upon you, whether or not that's informed by real life conditions or whether it's other technologies that sort of you know, contribute to that. Sure. Um, but we can end up I suppose tying my self worth to this idea of giving something up or sacrifice being something noble, but that can tip into I have more value than you because I'm sacrificing more than you. Yeah. I've yeah. got um, you know, this sort of position of almost martyrdom or victimhood, which gives me this sort of high ground over. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, I think you, you kind of answered your own question in the sense of like, it's just another thing to explore the other side of, uh, of what could be considered renunciation or generosity, right? It's really, as so much of it is about finding the balance, you know, and also looking at intention, you know, what is the intention here? Um, and then there was a little flavor of what people, the, 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 which is, was described in kind of the arrogance piece, like spiritual arrogance or like, you know, this kind of I'm nobler than you because I, you know, will either give up or be more generous, you know. So any, any of those kind of I'm evaluating, the, um, it's also locked into conceit. The, um, the Buddha gave a term uh, called mana, and mana means comparing mind right? 
We have a comparing not mind. We all do. Mana is particularly conceit I am. In other words, I am better than you, less than you, equal to you. There's this comparing that's happening. And so you, what you're kind of talking about is whether we're using generosity or renunciation, you know, I'm more spiritual than you because I've given it everything up or, you know, I had millions of dollars or I have a trust fund, but I'm going to hitchhike around the country, you know, and, you know, beg food off people because I'm somehow nobler, right? Um, I don't know if you're many one like that, but I have met quite a few. And, um, and it's not right or wrong, but it's just a, it's another way in which we get entangled into the idea of self, I am, conceit. Um, and it's just another thing to turn to, to explore. So thanks for bringing that up. Any, anything on the Zoom about generosity? It's 35 after. I'm going to, I'm going to try to cover the, the other two then, and then we'll, we'll get into it. So the next is loving kindness. And I kind of talked about loving kindness or, you know, last week and we recorded it. We did a, we did a, a meditation on, um, the metta practice, the metta meditation, but love and kindness in, in Vipassana, you know, we're trying to train ourselves to rebel against the conceptual mind, you know, in, instead of kind of observing the conceptual mind or just letting thoughts move through without spending much time on them, which is kind of like what we were talking about earlier, uh, in loving kindness, we're trying to re-engage this conceptual mind, but to also, you know, do it as a purifying or a reshaping um, towards the greater good. So that's kind of the idea is that they're, they're actually very different practices. And metta, uh, in my opinion, directly counters the agitation. Well, not so much. I mean, it does help with agitation. Concentration is actually way more helpful for agitation, but the meta uh, phrases is, is a direct kind of um, counter or antidote to anger, ill will, resentment, um, just that kind of uh, energy. And so just utilizing it can, uh, you know, some, some would say uh, it softens the heart. You know, and it allows us to feel more connected instead of separated, because a lot some of what you were also saying um, or asking about is this kind of idea of like how these things that separate us, which ultimately is uh, one of the main teachings of the Buddha, that we're not actually separate. We're actually all sharing the same lived experience and uh, that, yeah, you're, you're you and your personality type and your physical material form. And I'm me and my personality type and my physical form, but actually we're more alike than we are different, right? The mind, the mind is not much different from person to person. We all have the same emotions, but yet they're somehow my emotions, not your emotions, right? Or my thoughts, not your thoughts. You know, we actually have probably very similar thoughts because we're very similar creatures. Now, sometimes we like to think, oh, well, my thoughts are way superior to your thoughts, right? But that's another form of separation. So, so, so loving kindness kind of gives us this, this uh, level playing field of positive regard, like seeing all beings as uh, suffering, all beings as 
you know, uh, kind and giving and caring to whatever degree they're capable of. But we see it all the time. And this is why, you know, the inclination is to increase generosity. You know, have you ever noticed that if you increase being generous, you start to notice generosity more and you start to maybe experience generosity more. This is one of the benefits of, of uh, that practice. Same thing is true with loving kindness. If I walk around hating everyone because the world is unsafe and I have to keep everyone away all the time and protect myself, which I absolutely lived that way for many years, um, then I start to only see all of the threats, all of the, un the lack of safety. That's where I'm conditioning my mind to see. And what I love about Metta is Metta is actually helping us to level the playing field, to see, oh, yes, there's this, and there's also this. There's also kindness. There's also, you know, these moments of uh, positive regard that we experience and can experience every day. And even if it's just a simple interaction, like someone holding a door open for you as you walk into a store, you know, like, uh, cueing your mind into beginning and your heart into beginning to kind of notice small incremental moments of kindness that you experience um, and that you offer, you know, that is this part of what this training is. And again, um, it, it's about connecting and not separating. It's about feeling um, yeah, a part of and not separate from. So, So the last uh, aspect is wisdom. So wisdom from the Buddhist perspective um, is the antidote to confusion. We come into, m most of us come into this practice confused to some degree or another. From the Buddhist perspective, absolutely confused because that last thing I just talked about is what we believe. We believe we're actually kind of separate selves, you know, and permanent and lasting. And, you know, there's some confusion that we have there. And so the idea, and, and, and I've talked about this in another teaching around wise view, the idea is that we're, okay, let's begin to kind of analyze and see clearly what's happening in our experience, moment to moment, our interactions, in the world um, and then the dharma the teachings of the buddha is is proof that this all works and that wisdom is the knowledge of proof turned into experience right so first you know so there's knowledge we gain knowledge we can people can be not some people are, are not not knowledgeable about things right some people are knowledgeable about things um, but just having knowledge doesn't make one wise Knowledge and experience makes one gain, allows one to gain wisdom, which is why, you know, one of my teachers, uh, Ajahn Pasana would say, you know, you need this much book study, you know, this much like uh, reading of the Pali Canon and studying, you know, I meet people all the time and they're like, you know, um, what about this list and that list? And they want to know about all this information. And there's thousands of books out there and you can read them and they can be useful. But if you just read it without the practice, and so uh, Ajahn Pasana would say, you know, this much, like, you know, an inch of reading and a mile of practice, you know, 
um, that actually the practice is where the wisdom comes from. Um, we can have, we can fill our heads with knowledge. We've been doing that for, you know, since we learned how to read and has it really helped? I mean, greed, hatred, and delusion still alive and well, right? We're still suffering just as much as we did in the, the time of the Buddha or before, you know? So at some point we have to kind of recognize, oh, actually top down thinking, maybe not as helpful. I mean, we can make a lot of shit, you know, that we can sell and then want and then make more money and then want and then sell. And, you know, like that, that cycle that tends to be working pretty well in this, in this culture. Right. But is it actually freeing our hearts and minds, which is what the Buddha cared about? And I think the answer would be no, at least that's not been my experience. So wisdom is coming to that realization. So delusion, in my opinion, is actually kind of a deeper form of ignorance. Uh, if we are ignorant, you know, it's just a certain amount of knowledge and we can come out of ignorance, you know, even just like understanding the, um, the Four Noble Truths, you know, understanding and hearing the Four Noble Truths is like, oh, oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, it's coming out of a certain level of ignorance. I didn't even recognize. I knew what suffering was long before I found Buddhism because I just suffered, you know. But I didn't realize that there was a distinction between difficulties in life, pain, and suffering. And that suffering is actually self-generated. Like that is, that is a, an understanding that has come to me through, you know, practice and through reading and listening to Dharma talks and study and that kind of thing. So ignorance uh, is also like, and there's an example of ignorance of kind of forming beliefs or opinions based on a lack of knowledge. Uh, and I saw a ton of that last year. Did you guys see that last year? Where, you know, the left and the right and the right and the left and the vaccines and the, you know, there's just all of these opinions and no real knowledge about it. Just like, oh, this is what I think. Oh, and I heard somebody else say it. So yeah, that sounded good. So I'm gonna post about that. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna then get in a fight with people physically or online about an opinion that isn't actually even based in wisdom or real experience, but just because it sounded good that I heard from somebody else. That's, you know, there's tons of that. It's probably still happening. I, I don't know, I quit Facebook. It was the best thing I ever did. Best thing I did during the pandemic was delete Facebook. Um, so delete Facebook. Racism is another prime example of delusion and ignorance, you know, the, the not really based. I mean, what is race anyway? You know, that's a term. That's a made up term. It's not a reality. Just do a 23andMe, find out. Who's, we're, we're more alike than we are different. There's more DNA crossing than there are, you're this and I'm that. You know? The, the, the concept um, that one group based on skin color or physical attributes is somehow better than another person is complete delusion. Complete delusion feeding greed hatred greed and hatred so that delusion feeds greed and hatred and so the buddha was really saying delusion is actually 
the thing that we all need to work on. And that's what we're, that's what's often being talked about. So how do we work on coming out of a diluted state of mind? Well, mindfulness, meditation, living in an ethical way, right? Studying the Dharma, practicing the Dharma. This is how we become you know, free from the Dharma. Now, it doesn't mean like just because I'm like I'm denouncing that race, you know, race is not a concept. It doesn't mean that I'm saying that I don't think racism exists. It absolutely exists. And I know because I was raised in a dominant culture to believe that racism exists. Yet, I'm doing my best to not perpetuate that as often as I can. I'm not perfect at it. I have conditioning, just like all of us. So the Buddha, the, the Buddha Dharma is kind of the direct coming into understanding of the truth of the Buddha's teachings. The Buddha Dharma, that's one of the ways it's described. The teachings of the Buddha. And then through learning, reflection, and development of meditation, you know, we begin living in a way that supports a new understanding. And as we gain in a new understanding, that'll naturally lead to wisdom. So this is a mind training. We're really, I mean, that's why we meditate so much here. We're trying to learn to train our minds to do a different thing than it's been conditioned to do for thousands of years. But I think, you know, you know there's this teaching from the Buddha uh, where before he went to go, to go give his first teaching, he was kind of like in this reflective state. So this is 2,560 years ago. He was in this reflective state of like, okay, this was difficult. This was against the stream. This was hard. And I don't know if people are going to get it. There's too much greed. There's too much hatred. There's too much delusion. 2,560 years ago, he was like, oh, yeah, you know, Neanderthals, basically, like, just fight, fuck, kill, right? And so, yet he looked into his own heart and his, you know, wise, a wise mind, enlightened mind, and he saw that in every generation, there will be few with less dust in their eyes. This is a famous quote from the Buddha. In every generation, there will be few with less dust in their eyes. And those people will be drawn to the Dharma. They'll be drawn to the, to the truth. So maybe you have less dust in your eyes. And that's why you're here. And that's why you're willing to kind of keep going, right? I had a, uh, a student, someone I was working with, I was working with on a meditation retreat some, some years ago. And this person was, they were struggling, you know, they were struggling. They'd come to a couple of retreats and learning how to meditate and they were struggling. And, uh, and he was like, he was saying, I was talking about that. And he was saying, you, you know, it's like I'm taking dust and I'm throwing it in my eyes. I just keep taking it and throwing it back in my eyes. And then I go to a meditation retreat and I like, get a little, little dust cleared out. And then I go and, you know, I grab a handful. I just throw it in my eyes again. I thought it was super funny because that's just totally what we do. 
what we can do. It doesn't, doesn't have to be that way, but we do that. So this is mind training. And the Buddha gave kind of a tactical offense to battle the roots of suffering through generosity, loving kindness, patience, and hearing and understanding the Dharma. And that's, it's really that simple through generosity, loving kindness, patience, hearing and understanding the Dharma and practicing, practicing, doing what we just did, sitting every day. Doesn't matter for how long but preferably 20 minutes to 30 minutes. You know, practicing walking meditation, practicing mindfulness in, in our daily lives, loving kindness every day. And this is why it's easier for people when they go on meditation retreats because we like, it, it's closed in. It's like going into the laboratory, you know? It's a sterile environment, so to speak. Why this is the beauty of going on meditation retreat, right? Or going to a monastery or becoming a, a monk or a nun, renouncing the hecticness of the world allows one to focus specifically on this goal of becoming liberated from greed, hatred, and delusion. So, thoughts, questions, reflections. Anything I've said so far. You guys awake out there? How about on the uh, on the Zoom box? You can just uh, hit the re reaction and raise your hand or, or just unmute yourself. Go ahead. You got an older question in the chat, Chase. You check oh, it out. okay. Cool, yeah, thanks. Okay, anatomical question. Noah talks about soft belly. How do you cultivate that while sitting upright? This is a confounded, yeah, confounded. This is this has confounded me for a few years now. Uh, Death gives the mind a job trying to achieve that, but I think uh, it may be missing something. Thank you for that. Yeah, soft belly is uh, confusing. It's it's energetic, but it's also physical. And I, I have a guided meditation on Insight Timer called, it's the soft belly meditation. Um, but ultimately, on the exhale, just practice softening the belly. And it doesn't mean like slump, right? It means like, can I be upright and not be have tension in my gut, you know? And... Um, for me, I walked around in constant tension in my gut for years, you know, and I still, I don't know, I, I still do, not as often though. And and I, once you learn how to, oh, I can, if I can just exhale and soften, then you practice that more and more, and then it can happen easier and easier. Um, so that's kind of my, yeah, do you have more? No, Rachel, you're good? Okay. Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's a practice, but there is a specific kind of guided um, 
meditation called soft belly meditation that I have on Insight Timer, and it's actually Stephen Levine's uh, kind of creation in like 1978 or something. I was like, you know, seven. But it works pretty well. Anything else? Cool. So the homework, the challenge for you is to uh, choose one of the three, uh, generosity, loving kindness, or um, wisdom, you know, or, you know, gaining it. Basically, I guess that would be practice of meditation, right? Choose one of the three. And it also it could be reading some about the Dharma and practicing meditation. Um, so generosity, oh, renunciation also, that was the other half of, uh, of the antidote to greed, and uh, you know, loving kindness and or uh, practice and Dharma. And take that into your, into your life and commit to some, some, something. Just commit to something. Besides greed, hatred, and delusion. Because if not, the default will be, I don't know about your brains or your lives, but your default will be greed, hatred, or delusion if there isn't an intention set. So that's my, my encouragement is to set an intention and just give it a try for like a month, you know. Like try to be, you know, generous for a month or ren renounce something for a month. You know, do meta every day for a month increase mindfulness in as many as aspects of your life as possible throughout the day sit for 45 minutes a day something you know read the dhammapada if you'd like So, all right, that's enough for today. Thank you for your time and attention and being here and supporting uh, our center. The center is run completely on the donation of those who attend. Uh, so please, uh, if you can support the center, that'd be great. Um, it's a $15 suggested donation. Of course, you can uh, go to the Against the Stream um, website and you can uh, sign up as a monthly a monthly contributor that uh, that way it kind of really helps us have some sense of stability um, in an unstable world it's all an illusion anyway even even the, the illusion of stability is totally unstable just like the planet <laughs> totally unstable could blow up at any time we really have no idea the hot molten lava in the center that's suspended in nothingness. So weird. <laughs> right? But yeah, we're so attached. Anyway, help us keep the lights on. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Um, may any goodness that's come from our practice, may this goodness be dedicated to the freedom from suffering for all beings. May all beings be free, even you, even me.
Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.